Welcome back to Cleric Swear Ringmail, postpartum edition. Between the last time we talked, or the last time I talked and you listened, I've got a bunch of call-ins, about an hour of call-ins and responses, but I know that it's going to take a while for me to get all of them edited and pruned down, and I know that a lot of folks like the shorter runtimes, so what I'm going to do, I'm going to break them up a little bit. So, as of this recording, I've got, for the next week and a half or so, a three-part treat planned for you. And today, the first installment, A Dialogue with Daniel, Part 2. Hey, Taylor. Daniel from Bandits Keep Calling In. I am so far behind on all podcasts. <laughs> um, so I am calling in about, I guess, not, I think, well, your last one, but um, still catching up on ones that were prior than that. Prior to that, I just figured I'd jump ahead. But anyways, um, you're asking about what system I, I know you specifically, Daniel, would like you to run if you were going to do actual plays or talk about. I don't know. I, I think that in my mind, I'm thinking, oh, yeah, the chainmail hack, because of course, <laughs> of course I'm going to say that. But I kind of fall into this idea of that you should run whatever you can run now, and then you can always add things. And I say that because I started working on my second chainmail hack, the Unchained thing, and it really threw me off from working on the first thing I was doing. So too many projects can sometimes get none of them done. So I think that if you can already run OD&D with chainmail, perhaps that's the thing to do so that you can have fun playing games. And you can be working on your other project while you're going, and players that are playing the first game are likely going to want to switch. That's a clever approach. I think I may just do that. When I first started working on the chainmail hack that I was working on, I wanted to see how far I could go with just the chainmail booklet. I liked how some of the concessions in chainmail made up for some of the abstractions that don't quite make sense in D&D. I liked that chainmail has a very obvious progression between modes of play, as you've demonstrated, Daniel, on your actual plays channel. And really, the game is a a fragment. The game is a framework that's just ripe for using. So I wanted to take Chainmail and kind of weld it onto some other tenets of games that I like, that I wanted to play. And then I thought about it and I'm like, well, let's see how compatible I can get it. Can I make these cool innovations but still work with the uh, OSR label, so to speak? As one of the folks I've played with in the past, and one of the people that I consider fake friends on the internet famously puts it, if I can run B2 in it with no modification, it's OSR. And I'm going to try to make a chainmail hack that you can run B2 in. To that end, a lot of the work I've done so far was inspired by or parallel to D&D Zero Edition. But I thought about it and I kind of had to step back because there was so much there. And I wanted to take some time to play test it and take some time to see how the changes I'm, that I was thinking of making would fit into the game before really diving in. Using OD&D as a starting point might actually be the better idea. We take something that we know how it works, that has all of the pieces, and then work away from that until 
as Gygax uh, famously worked away from D&D into AD&D. Or the time that Gygax took Arbella and turned it into Alexander the Great. Until it was sufficiently different to constitute a new and unique system, that may be the better way to do it. Because you immediately have an avenue to dive in and make sure the core stuff works. And then um, once you've got that down, you dive in and make sure some of the peripheral stuff works. And so on and so forth. With that in mind, great idea. Thank you for encouraging it. And I think if I get to run a game in the relative future, I may just run it as ODD Chainmail because I can run that right now with the exception of needing to figure out how VTTs work in that Astral, the one I have been using, appears to be going off market. And then from there, bring it back to where I want it to be. Hack it until it's my home system. And that... I think that's parallel to the spirit of the game, right up until, of course, the S and TSR turned into a dollar sign. But that's neither here nor there. I know I hear all the time from people that, uh, you know, people that I don't really game with that much, um, that, oh, nobody wants to play different games or whatever, but I have not had that problem. I feel like if your group is happy playing together and you don't make them have to read a 300-page rule book, they're usually happy to switch systems to try something different, at least for a short period. So, you know, run OD&D with Chainmail, and when your Chainmail hack is ready to be playtested, start dropping in some adventures with it, and people will join. That's kind of what my plan is with Unchained now. I'm going to kind of put it on the back burner and uh, finish up the OD&D with Chainmail hack complete, because I'm, I'm learning as I'm actually playtesting it now things I want to change, things I want to change around, or, you know, add to it, and et cetera. So, yeah, the, I'd, I'd be down for whatever you do, and I guess i got to get back for read, reading the blog I, as well, because I'm getting way before, far behind on that. My old college group was the same way. Uh, I actually, after 4th edition dropped, uh, wrote <laughs> a 300-page rule book. I had a lot of time in college, and not only did they read it, build characters off of it, play test it, and kind of burn through it, uh, they actually helped enhance it. So by the end of that year, uh, I called it our game, not mine. So my experience is parallel to yours, but I do respect that there are people out there who have pet systems that they really like playing. And so, for example, the one of the other refs that uh, played with me ran his home game in our system that we'd put together. Then one of the other refs, he ran 3-5 because that was just his his baby. When we sat down at his table, we knew that we would be playing in Phil Room, the heart of the Phil-gotten realms. He didn't know we called it that. I wonder if he listens to this podcast. But anyway, that's awesome to hear. Uh, I'm excited that you're still working on your side project games. Uh, I downloaded it uh, at least once and am tempted to steal bits and pieces of it. I wish I had the opportunity to play through it with you, though as of late, uh, my schedule, I would not wish to impose that on anybody. In any case, I've got a fire lit under my tuchus, so we will see if there are some Australians where my bizarre availability rings true. One more, or maybe more. (laughs) Who knows how many? As far as clerics, I think this is, again, super interesting. Maybe I just play with weird players, but I've never had an issue with people feeling like either they didn't want to play a cleric or that they had to. I mean, I've run full campaigns where we 
had a cleric occasionally in the group. It's never been an issue. I think I don't lean very heavily on healing in my games. I, I try to make it hard to get, and I try to let people use natural healing a lot more so that they don't feel like they need to be healing constantly. I'm just thinking in my V game, we had a character that multiclassed in the cleric, but they only did that because they found a trident that was like a godly trident or something, and they had to change like and swear fealty to the trident. They didn't even take a level. They just did it because, you know, they thought that would be the appropriate thing. Mechanically, they could have just swore fealty, but they said, I'm going to take a level of cleric. So we did have a cleric there for a little while. As a player who tends to play clerics, uh, I can feel you there. And, uh, and, you know, in a lot of the OSR games, somebody will play a cleric if they just happen to roll high wisdom. But I don't, again, we don't play that many games that people feel like they need to be clerics. At least that's been my experience. And then I have some players that like to play clerics. So I guess that's not really, you know, what I'm wondering too, is if it comes down to the idea of, and I think you kind of hinted on this, or maybe you said it. <laughs> Sorry, it's like two days after I listened to that. Um, the idea that, like, if you look at, if you have three classes, you know, cleric, fighter, magic user, you think of fighter, you can think of 20 fighters off the top of your head. When you think cleric, everybody falls into the same idea for some reason. Uh, and I think that's maybe a mistake because there's lots of ways to look at what a cleric could be and give you a lot of flavor. So you're not always just this, like, either super pious, holy person or a healer. You could be any number of things, you know, a crusader. You could be a monk. You could be, you know, any number of, uh, effectively uh, blessed individuals that have, you know, found faith. That raises a really good question. Why do we fall on the same cleric trope every time? I can understand why we don't necessarily go to a uh, Benedictine or Franciscan monk because, you know, they aren't wearing armor, which is one of the D&D type clerics purviews. I've heard people talk about Solomon Cain as an inspiration. But at the same time, he could fit as a paladin, and really for both of those classes, I haven't read a lot of Solomon Cain, but does he, does he also wear armor? I, I don't think he does. Similarly, they have that weird weapon restriction. By weird, I mean there's a gamist reason. The cleric will, it won't outshine the fighter, but it will keep up, no questions asked, with the fighter, and if you don't give the fighter uh, more flexibility in their equipment, then the fighter becomes a silly choice to make. And we're, we're going to ignore the option of the dwarf for the purposes of this argument. In other news, I'm also a big fan of customizing clerics. So not all pantheons necessarily lead to Rome. You can have potentially different spell lists, different weapon selections, different armor options, different spell progression, that is how many you get per day per level, uh, and all that fun stuff, depending on the nature of the patron deity. That helps to give it a lot of flavor from the perspective of a referee or a dungeon master, but at the uh, perspective of the player in a just vanilla game, yep, you're, you're right. There's a bit of a gulf there, and I'm curious where it came from, if not from, you know, the stuff I already pontificated about. When I was in, when I played Curse of Strahd and I was a player, um, I played a cleric and her, I actually took her background as street urchin or whatever it is. And I had it still exactly that. She was struck with, you know, kind of the, uh, the Saul Paul thing, right? Like she basically, not that she was anti, uh, you know, gods or whatever, but she was kind of not really 
one way or the other on it. And then she effect- effectively fell off a ship during a raid from pirates, and she survived. And she felt like that's because the uh, the gods had saved her for a reason, and then she effectively found faith. So I always played her as like a untrained cleric. Like she didn't go to, you know, cleric school or whatever. <laughs> you know, you would go to the big cleric. It was just that she was naturally in connection with the god that she worshipped. And, you know, again, that's just a different way to play a cleric that's not your standard cleric. She was much more roguey. She even used a sword. Very interesting idea for the swashbuckling cleric there. So I guess to summarize, because <laughs> I've left a lot of messages, um, I try to tell my players, and they all pretty much say this to any new person that comes in, play what you want. You know, if, you, if there's a, a, a character you want to play, play it. If the whole party is thieves, that's fine. The party is thieves. If the whole party is fighters, that's fine. This mixed party and having enough of this and enough of that, I don't know. I'm not a big fan of that. I don't think it's a problem, obviously. It's nice to have a mix, but it's certainly not a problem to go the other way. And if the party wants to be all one type or doesn't have any certain character classes, they will figure out a way to get around and do their mission the way they'll do it. And never, ever make an adventure that you have to have a certain character type. I think that's just bad adventure design, even if you're designing vanilla adventures. See how I tied that all back together? So, <laughs> I did see that, and thank you for the reminder, because I totally, while recording responses, spaced on that and have forgotten to listen to that message. <laughs> I will go back and then let uh, Editor Taylor figure it out. And then Editor Taylor didn't. But on the subject of party composition, party composition just kind of reeks of builds. And that's a, that's hearkening it way back to a conversation like last two years ago, I don't know, but the important part is having a party composition be essential to the success of the mission means that it's a video game. You're picking out the pieces that fit into the puzzle and you have a pre-designed assumption of what's going to happen in your adventure. And more so, it's not faithful to the fiction. While sitting in labor and delivery, I was reading through the coming of Conan the Sumerian, a collection of the original Robert E. Howard stories uh, regarding Conan, and he's never in a perfect party. He's occasionally by himself. He's usually accompanied. There'll be a, there might be a warrior. There's a thief. He's occasionally accompanied by a priest, but never once does he go out and try to put together this perfect team, this perfect A-list to roll in and uh, uh, take names, chew bubblegum. He used the strengths of his person and character, as well as his wits, to his advantage. Sometimes people around him perished, and other times they thrived. And that kind of memory is the kind of one I like to have, and the one I like to think I create when playing or running games. I, too, take the idea of uh, good vanilla as a, as a positive or a compliment. <laughs> I'm, I'm sure that's how it was meant as well, but I have also been called vanilla. <laughs> and, you know, one of my design philosophies when I'm designing my adventures is to make them as generic as possible so the DM can put in their flavor. And I get so many uh, responses that are like, well, the, 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 the witch could be this. They could be using these weapons. They could be following this cult. Good. You do that at your table. I'm just putting the witch there. You add whatever you want. To me, I almost never use, unless I'm doing a one-shot, I almost never use the lore that comes with an adventure because it doesn't fit my world. So, 
uh, you know, while I like that stuff and I find it interesting, I actually like vanilla. I like the idea that you could insert it into anywhere, change those uh, symbols on the wall to suit your world, and be good to go. So I'm down with the vanilla crew. Less is almost always more. A memorable adventure is going to be one that you bounce off the players, you can take their cool ideas, morph them, you can take their bad ideas and punish them, and all in all, you weave an experience, a collaborative experience that they don't know they're collaborating on. One of the things that I've taken to doing in some of the larger dungeons that I write or run is instead of trying to have a key for the whole thing, I will have a key for the rooms that matter, i.e. faction boss lives here, uh, treasure is here, but for empty rooms, for trapped rooms, I won't put anything in them. I have a table, a uh, set dressing uh, is, I believe, what I call the appendix when I put them in a PDF. I have a set dressing table, which I roll on sometimes before the session starts, but usually as the player kicks open the door. Some of those set dressing items have turned out to be focal points. And uh, I won't say too much because I may actually, this is uh, in relation to the Warlock Tower, and I may actually complete that adventure for those players eventually. One of the central things that they've honed in on and spent a lot of time on was one of those set dressing entries. And I kind of went with it. I rolled with it. Uh, I made it into more than it was. And then in between sessions, I thought about, okay, how can I make this something cool, something central to the, to the adventure? So Warlock Tower, as I am playtest running it, is totally different than how Warlock Tower reads, which is totally different from how Warlock Tower will play at your table. And that's awesome. That gives you the opportunity as a referee to rerun the same adventure or to take ideas from the same adventure and refluff them because you know that it's going to be different every time. You're going to produce a new story every time and your players are going to have a new experience to discuss. In conclusion, good vanilla, maybe with a side of sprinkles. So as far as um, using, we'll say, current, currently worshipped religions, I'm not sure exactly, but specifically Christianity um, in the game, I, I think it's interesting, right? I mean, I think it would be hard to replicate in a role-playing game um, the types of religions that most modern people tend to follow. Ha <laughs> ha! Called it! I don't know if you are pulling a U and calling in before finishing the segment, but... That you'll be unsurprised to learn as the episode rolls on, maybe the next episode, that you and I are in accord. Modern religions, the practiced religions, there's not as much leeway in them from how the mythology operates than there is with archaic religions. So I'm with Joe Richter on that one. I like to grab pre-Christian obscure deities and build custom pantheons off of that because lots of leeway and Lots of cool stuff out there. Um, if we look at the legends and the, the kind of the, the mythologies like Greek and Roman and stuff, those kind of uh, deities seem to have more, we'll say, in-your-face <laughs> uh, interactions with the world, right? So they make it so they're not just there. Um, if you're going to play a game where where faith is the real power and you're not necessarily seeing uh, the, the hand of the deity, let's say, as openly and obviously... That's a different story, and I think that could be played, but I think 
both you and Jason hit on the idea of like just using bits and inspiration from various religions anyways, whether they be ancient mythology or something modern, maybe. Full transparency. I did say that I was on board with Jason, but Jason didn't precisely say that he agreed with analogs, which he clarifies in a further call-in. That call-in will not make it into this episode, but it's coming up in the future. So I put a little bit of words in his mouth there. And I think that makes more sense. But really the reason why I'm calling in with two two messages, even though it could have been done one, is I'm wondering what you guys think of something like Pendragon. So, of course, in Pendragon, you are playing Christians, right, theoretically. And uh, I'm curious. I don't know too deeply the rules, but I do know that, for instance, when you reach a certain level or you achieve certain things, you gain bonuses because you are something, and this is not an exact quote, but armored in your faith or something to that effect. So they actually use... uh, Christian tropes and or Christian ideas, at least, you know, pseudo-Christian in that game. And I'm curious what you guys think of that, if you know much about it, or maybe you don't. Um, So, yeah, curious. Pendragon. I do not know much about Pendragon at all. We'll have to reach out and find somebody who's played a lot of it. I know a couple people who have podcasted on it, and we'll have to think about having a conversation about what the role of religion is in that game compared to how it operates in Real life. It's now a few days after I recorded my initial response to the Pendragon bit, and I've been thinking about it. Arthurian legend is Christian-based, but it has a bunch of other stuff to it. There's a bunch of other traditions that inform it. In the same sense that Tolkien is Christian-based, Tolkien himself was a Catholic, who would respond to English masses with Latin responses, but that's beside the point. On the assumption that Pendragon is an Arthurian kind of historical piece, it makes perfect sense to have the Christianity of the time represented, even if that doesn't jive with how we understand Christianity today. And the same could be said for other games that engage in, say, Sinbad, Arabian Nights-style games, If executed towards the mythos and spirit of the emulated fantasy fiction, it's not disrespectful to the modern religion. Thinking about it, because it's not like we are recreating the modern religion. We are recreating the fiction. We are recreating the mythos. We are recreating the historical pieces. When you go to a Civil War reenactment, the gray coats and the blue coats aren't actually trying to kill each other. So that is doubtless a way to include a, a real thing in your game while still being respectful and faithful to the source. Well documented, sir. You got me thinking. Do you, the listener, agree with me and or Daniel? Do you, the listener, know a lot about Pendragon and would you like to share it with us? If either is the case, or if you got something else on your heart and want to spill it out for me, please feel free to give me a call over at Anchor. The link will be in the show notes. Additionally, thank you, Daniel, for calling in so prolifically, giving me enough material for a full episode to come out, and I will link his work in the show notes as well. In any case, it's a fun topic to think about, a fun topic to talk about, back and forth bouncing from the hospital, and first installment in our multi-part series of calls. Hey, 
Who knows? Other folks, if you start calling in again, maybe it'll be a forfer. Delve on, everybody. Delve on. Swearing Mail Podcast is an independently owned and operated product released for educational and informative purposes under the Totally Steal This license, which is kind of like Creative Commons, except f- licensing. Segments recorded within a vehicle are recorded using a Bluetooth hands-free device in conjunction with local vehicular safety legislation. The music for the Clear Swearing Mail Podcast is Gold Coffee by Michael Ramirez, retrieved from Mixkit.co and used under the Mixkit royalty-free music license. Sound effects used in the Clear Swearing Mail Podcast are also retrieved from Mixkit.co and used in accordance with the Mixkit-free sound effects license. Clear Swearing Mail does not ascribe to nor endorse views or opinions expressed by call-ins, guests, or even the host, unless you think they're awesome, and thus does not assume any liability regarding the consumption or distribution of this podcast. By listening to the Clear Swearing Mail Podcast, you agree to these provided terms. Parties with questions regarding these terms, conditions, or releases are encouraged to reach out to Clear Swearing at the prescribed methods provided on the Clearest Wearing Mail blog. Parties dissatisfied with these terms, conditions, or releases are encouraged to go suck an egg.